0: It's been a while, hasn't it? I know everyone says it, but time has this strange way of flowing when you're an adult. I guess I'm at that age where I'm in between being a kid and getting old. Or maybe that's your entire life. In between things. Well, it's summer now, which means we're dealing with a massive influx of people in the parks. We're an incredibly popular camping destination because of our large amount of camps in scenic areas. And in the summer season, these camps are almost always operating at almost to full capacity at any given time. We are well staffed and all of us know what to look for, what to expect. We have teams standing by in the event of any kind of emergency. Even so, people still manage to slip away. In response to a couple of other incidents at the same site, we installed a camper near the entrance, and the ranger stays out there every night. We rotate so everyone spends one night a week there. I chose Wednesdays as they tend to be relatively low-key with only our long-term guys around. This particular day has been humid, like the inside of a locked car. All of us were relatively miserable, but the camper had a small AC unit. And the campers and I took turns sitting in it until the sun went down. We all bedded down, and I had the AC turned up as high as it would go. It's a loud unit, so I had earplugs in. The camper is tiny but comfortable, and I fell asleep relatively quickly. I woke up in total silence, and it took me a minute to realise that that was the problem. The AC had stopped, and there was absolutely no sound outside. I sat up and the sheets didn't make any noise. I clapped. Nothing. I yelled. Nothing. This had happened to me before. I'm a firm believer that it's some kind of strange acoustical phenomenon, but I don't think it's caused by the wind. I got out of bed and yanked on my boots and flew out the door. I ran to the edge of the campsite about 500 feet away. And somewhere behind the trees, there was something darker than the space around it. So I headed for it. But I must have misjudged its distance because it took longer to get there than it should have. They'd split a tree in half. I've seen lightning do that a few times, but not this cleanly. This cut was surgical. The bushes underneath it had been crushed. And I could faintly make out the shape of something furry. A raccoon, I suspected. The intestines bursting out of its eye sockets were already attracting flies. The stairs were concrete, old, but I could make out the lines of graffiti on the lower steps. A metal handrail bowed out hazardlessly. Most of the supports bent or gone. Ten, maybe twelve steps, in a rush, the sound of the world came back, and I heard the faint electrical snap of a fly exploding near my ear. I sprinted back to camp. I grabbed the rifle out of the pickup and I had taken to the site and stood at the edge of the camp, my back to the woods. I stood there and watched until the sun came up. I watched the whole camp, every tent. I know I never fell asleep and no one came into our camp, so I really don't know how the woman got away. Her tent was in my direct line of sight, as best as I can guess. She must have gotten out when I was turned away for a second. They are hopeful that she's still alive, of course, but I think we all have to close that part of the park for a while. Officially, we'll be keeping an eye on things, but I wouldn't take much comfort in that. We are keeping an eye on a lot of things. I am on call 24 hours a day now. It's not the greatest thing in the world, but it pays the bills. And sometimes they let me leave early or take extra days off if I'm tired. There's not that much going on at night, of course, but occasionally one of us has to run out and deal with something. An animal sighting, a missing person, drunk people shooting each other, you know, that sort of thing. All in all, I get called out about a dozen times a month for some kind of nighttime emergency. Generally, the calls go something like this. A text and a phone call from my boss. 15 minutes to get out of the door dressed in my uniform. 30 to work then anywhere from 5 minutes to 8 hour dealing with the issue. If it's a missing person or the cops are involved, up to 2 days without sleep. The worst was a murder-suicide that took a week. By the end of it, I was in the hospital with severe fatigue and dehydration. My boss knows I'll pick up as soon as he calls, but I don't always hear texts. Usually he'll text first in case I'm up, but otherwise he'll get me on the phone. He is the only one who contacts me in this situation, that's always been our system in the past. So you can imagine my surprise when I get a call from him at a two in the morning and saw I had seventy-seven zero missed texts from just about every single person in our department. Yeah, what's up, I said, sitting up, I'm great at faking being awake on the phone. Cleetwood trail, south entrance, it's bad, don't worry about your clothes, just get here. He was breathing heavy and he didn't wait for me to finish my greeting. What's up? I was concerned. No, my boss is unflappable. Just get out here. It's bad. Of course I immediately thought of the murder-suicide. It took us days to find all the pieces of their skulls. How bad? I said. KD is on our way. Call when you've figured it out. He hung up. He'd never sent another ranger up before me. I scroll through the barrage of texts. Oh my god, Russ, what the hell is going on? Dude, what the F? I'm sorry, what's going on out there? Call me, call Gary right now, oh my god. I threw my clothes on and was out the door in about 5 minutes. The drive took about 15 minutes, going in 90 on the freeway and along the way my phone kept pinging notifications. I turned it off and tossed it in the back seat. When I got there, KD was waiting for me. Something about her face was wrong and in the non-existent light I had to get close to her to see that she was wearing a respirator. The smell was like a wall. I ran into it about 5 feet from her and gagged. I took the respirator she handed me and strapped it on, coughing and doubled over. Bad huh? She quipped. Her voice muffled. She patted me on the back. Come on. I followed her into the forest and even behind the filters I could still smell it. Believe me, it bothers me as much as it does anyone else when people say that something is indescribable, but I really do not know how to paint an accurate picture of what it was like. Imagine taking a fish and filling it full of other dead fish. Put the stuffed fish in a bag made out of skin of even more dead fish and leave the bag sitting in the sun for a few days. Sprinkle some halitosis and rotting grass on top of the bag. Let it sit for another few days. Now open the bag and stick your head in it and take a nice big breath. That should give you an idea of what it was like from half a mile away. It was hard to be heard through the respirators, so we didn't talk much while we walked. Neither of us really wanted our mouths open anyway. I kept thinking about how smells are composed of particulate, and a few times I had to stop and lift the respirator to spit and dry heave. KD clapped me on the back, almost knocking me off my balance and sending my spit flying. Gross, huh? She said, half shouting. Don't worry, it's only worse from here. I gave her a weak thumbs up and we kept going. She'd taken the van with her on-site equipment inside and she'd been there long enough to have carted a couple of portable spotlights to the scene. As we crested a hill, I could see them shining on something. Something huge. The top of the thing crested out of the trees in places. A huge grey behemoth. I shot her a look, but she just grinned and waved me ahead. The smell was thick enough now to almost be visible, and something crunched under my feet. The robin I'd crushed was still alive and it raised one wing weakly. I crushed its skull and moved on, but there were others. They remained where they'd fallen, their sides heaving and an occasional wing raised and dropped. Smell got him, I think, KD said, kicking a bird off the path. There's a raccoon up here too. Took one bite and died. It was hilarious. Come look. I stepped around the birds and the light flittered through the trees. Shining on their little all draw pies, The path straightened and up ahead I could see that the hulking thing, whatever it was, had fallen right across it about 300 yards ahead. I broke into a jog and KD kept pace. I went as close as I could until the smell was too much and then I just stood while KD kept going. She kicked the thing and spread her arms out, taking it all in. The way she illuminated it, only parts were really visible. It rose up an impenetrable wall and disappeared into the tops of the trees. The sporadic but careful lighting gave it almost a reverent quality, like an artifact on display. Either way I looked, the thing stretched into the dark. KD walked the length of it to my right until I could barely make her out in the dark. I craned my head up and could just see the edge, where it curved and dipped back down. I forced myself closer to the rubbery surface of the thing. It was greyish, darker in the light, and the surface was scarred and stippled with white marks. Katie came back and walked down to the left. Come here, she called. I followed, not taking my eyes off the thing. We walked and kept walking, her hand sometimes brushing the thing, and up ahead now I could see something sticking out of the side of the wall. Know what it is now? I could hear that she was grinning, enjoying the mystery. It was some kind of thick flap, huge, bigger than both of us combined. One side was attached to the thing it hung to the ground, where it rested in the dirt. At the place where the flap joined the wall, there were strange protrusions. Ignoring the smell, now I looked closer. There were many of them, in various sizes, small, grainy craters, That's when the pieces fit together and I backed off, stumbling over myself and almost falling into the dirt. KD lifted the pectoral flipper with great effort. You imagine how strong they'd have to be to move these things? Wish it still had its tail. I ran forward and kept going until above my head I could see something reflecting the light, just barely. Something liquid and glassy, just beginning to fog with bacteria and decay. The mouth was slightly open, and algae and the balin was beginning to rot. Suddenly, there was a loud, wheezing exhale, and the thing moved, just slightly, the mouth open showing more of the slimy, putrid baleen, and from somewhere far down on the other side there was a creak, and a thud I felt rather than heard. Holy shit, KD whispered. Thought it died an hour ago. You feel that? It's still trying. The milky eye moved to look at me, and there was another, weaker exhale. And as we stared at each other, the whale opened its mouth a little more, closed it, and died. The light left the blind eye, and the entire corpse sagged, letting off more of that terrific stench. KD was still talking. It's another of those clean cuts, right through the whole back of it. If you go around the other side, it's missing that thin and a big slice of its skin, but the tail's totally gone. I couldn't break away, couldn't stop looking into the cataract that was forming, all the bacteria now free to multiply and turn everything to liquid. Though the baleen that I could just make out of the bulk of the tongue, and it was already losing colour, already being eaten from the inside, and I ran as far away as I could before doubling over and vomiting. KD came over and patted my back. When it was over, I wiped my mouth and put the respirator back on. Now I went back to the corpse and began walking the length of it, shutting off every light. I couldn't stand to see it lit so beautifully. I honestly don't even know who to call, KD said. Down at the other end I could see the clean slice, where the tail had been taken off. No boat propeller could have done it but that was no surprise. I knew what had. I wondered how big they had been, down there in the deepest dark where only whales could go. It answered a theory I'd had for some time. The stairs were impartial. Deep down in my gut, there was a glassy, obsidian panic that was so familiar now as to be a noticeable except when more weight was added. Suddenly, more than anything, I wanted to be at home in the dark. And I told KD who to call, what to do, so I could hand her my respirator and begin to walk back to my truck, never looking back at the corpse cresting the trees, the top of it growing its own forest of birds, feasting. We'll leave it to rot, we'll see a water spout sucked up fish from one of the lakes and dumped them out here. When the bones are the only thing left, we'll dispose of them, and the trail will reopen. I drove back home and I went to bed. I'm sorry I haven't been around for so long, I had an accident, a pretty bad one. I'll talk about it some other time. There's been an outbreak here, it started about three weeks ago, when the leaves were just turning. Tourists poured in from all over the country. It happens every year to go camping before the first snow and take pictures. It's our town's last tourist season before everything shuts down for the winter, and we're used to handling the influx of people. But with that many people, of course you're going to see a big increase in accidents and reports. A lot of the reports are the usual bear, bigfoot, wildcat, and serial killer sightings. An equal amount are fires, gunshots, disorderly conduct, and basic first aid calls. I cannot stress enough how mundane most of our days are in terms of unusual events. We can go months, sometimes years without any really huge incidents, but, that being said, we seem to be in the middle of an outbreak. In the last three weeks, we had more unusual reports than we had in the past eight months combined. Maybe it's because people are paying attention, but isn't it equally possible that people are hysterical? Maybe they just want to see things because they hear about them and want their own stories to tell of a lot of them are probably just that. This is one of those that a tiny percent of reports that we can't shelf and dismiss as coincidence, one of the few with physical evidence. I got a report about possible body sighting and we dispatched to check it out. The callers were waiting out by the trailhead for me, a mum and her two daughters. One of the girls, the taller one, who I'll call MK. I was talking about how she instantly recognized the bones as human, I made it clear that they hadn't disturbed anything at all. The shorter one, bright green-haired, SK, was quiet. I asked her if she'd seen anything. She seemed visibly upset by the experience and didn't say much. MK explained that they'd been out hiking to do some scouting, I didn't ask what she meant. So she continued and clarified that they had been looking for anything unusual. Her mother broke in and assured me that they weren't looking for trouble. They'd heard stories about things going on in the woods and were simply using it as an excuse to get out and do a bit of hiking before winter. SK stayed close to her mother and only nodded in agreement at the appropriate point. At about the half mile marker, MK pointed off the trail ahead of us. The bone stood out against the orange and red of the fallen leaves where it had fallen and it was easy to spot long, carved, It was completely clean of any flesh or muscle. A foot away leading into the trees and away from the path, a slightly larger one, also clean, lay hazardously on top of fallen branches. We were careful to skirt around it as we passed. Four more behind that led into the thicket they described and tucked up under a bush was the torso. The mother backed away and SK took her arm and held it tightly. MK knelt beside me, frowning. We inspected it together. Whoever he had been, he hadn't been toned. Bits of dead leaves and bark were stuck in the thatch of thick chest hair. After a brief survey of the area, we both felt certain that the rest of the man wasn't nearby. Nothing had been disturbed. What we had was a segment beginning slightly below the armpits and ending just below the last rib. That's not all though. Look. MK got to her feet and retrieved a small branch that she had used to lift the flesh with. Doing this, we could peer inside the body cavity to see that it had been hollowed out. The remaining ribs rattled loosely, attached to nothing. The spine was gone, the wound was bloodless and surgical in precision. We inspected the edges, which were impossibly clean. There were no tool marks, no bruising, aside from the obvious. It wasn't clear what this man had died of. MK began offering her own theories, ranging from specialised equipment to some kind of cold laser, when behind us a small voice piped up. Why are you lying? MK turned the stick over in her hands before snapping it out and throwing it away. I got to my feet and looked at SK. Her arm still locked around her mother's. They held each other tightly. It was the stairs, that's why we're out here. SK glanced at the trees. And that's what this was, right? It's like the hand. That tree. Her eyes were watery and white. Isn't that what this was? I could feel MK staring at the back of my head. Let's go, I finally said. We can't be here. SK's face tightened as she turned, leading her mother into a brisk walk back to the patch. MK didn't follow. That's it? She called at me. Aren't you calling it in? Let's go, I said again. I could hear her charge up the path and pass me with a furious glance. She passed her sister and mother and beat us back with time to spare. I walked them back to the car, leading them carefully away from the station without letting them stop. Before they left, SK turned to me again. I was right, wasn't I? I didn't see anything. She looked at me for a little longer before climbing in her car. She watched me until they were too far for her to see
1: me anymore. Lately, I haven't been sleeping much. There's a lot on my mind and I've always been prone to insomnia anyway. The last few days it's been bad enough that I'm lucky if I get two, three hours tops. Last night was my Friday and I had planned on staying up but I hadn't planned on pulling an all-nighter. I'm working on a personal writing project, though. I lost track of time. I took a break around 3 in the morning, got up to stretch and eat and shit. I passed my living room on the way to the kitchen. Like a lot of people, I leave my TV on all the time on a low volume because I like having the background noise. I live in a very small town, and the local news has a traditional sign-off when the program ends for the night. An American flag waves while the anthem plays, and a message bids the viewer good night. After that, it's just a test pattern until 6, when the early guys come on. When I passed by, the anthem was just coming to an end. I made a sandwich and on the way back to the bedroom, I stopped to change the channel to something else. But the station wasn't playing its usual pattern and I sat down to see what was going on. Around here, the Forest Service puts out emergency broadcasts when someone goes missing or there's an issue in the park. Because our town is basically bordered on three sides by very dense woodland, anything that happens in the park affects us almost immediately and alerts aren't that uncommon. I wonder if someone had had an issue at one of the campgrounds, and I figured I might as well see what was going on before going back to work. If it was a major issue, they were going to call me anyway. Might as well beat them to the punch. I ate my sandwich and muted the TV so I wouldn't have to listen to the tone. Whoever was running the alert wasn't using a canned message, so the standard alert was still flashing. I found it odd that they'd be running it so early. Generally, if a major issue comes up in the small hours, the tornado sirens are turned on and the cops will go door to door. It's a very small town, so that's not an impossible task. The only times in my memory that we've had to do this were when the tornado touched down outside the town limits last year, and when a wildfire hopped the state border and was coming up faster than anticipated. But I've never seen an alert run after about 10 at night, so it was strange to see an emergency alert now without hearing the sirens running in tandem. The standard screen flickered for a second, which usually signals the end of the tone and the beginning of the actual message, so I unmuted the TV. I caught the tail end of the tone before it switched to the interval honk, or whatever that flat tone's called. A message appeared very briefly, but I didn't have time to see it, and you can't of course rewind emergency broadcasts. A second message popped up. Please be advised. I laughed and started to pull my phone out of my pocket for a screenshot, but before I could take a picture of the message, it disappeared and was replaced with a real-time one. Whoever was writing it was typing fast and inaccurately. This is around when I started to get a bit uneasy.
2: Please do not contact the emergency services or family members. We are aware of the situation.
1: The message disappeared and there was a brief pause. I sent a text to a buddy of mine who also tends to stay up late and told him to turn on the news too. A new message, pre typed, appeared.
2: Please ensure that all children are present before making a report. False reports are subject to and the message was cut off. Nothing from my buddy. I
1: started scanning the news on my phone for any breaking stories, but I didn't see anything. The weather was calm. There were no fires. They can move? My phone buzzed and I pulled up the message. My buddy was watching and was just as perplexed, so I called him. We talked while we watched the alert. Call the police. You seeing this? My friend said. What the fuck are they doing? Well who's doing it, too? It's not a drill. It doesn't say. Does it say if it's just a test? We were both quiet while we read the new message.
2: Make them run. If they don't go back inside and call 911, don't let the kids see themselves. We don't know what happens. There's no way. This is a joke. Dude, someone's going to get fired. I couldn't tell if he was trying to make me laugh or himself. At the tree line, they get stuck, and they run in place or they turn into something else. Please don't be afraid, they aren't your children. Your children are asleep. Both of us were quiet. Please avoid going between levels of your house. Stay where you are. Your children are not outside. They are upstairs in bed. What do we do?
1: my buddy asked. Don't go up your stairs, I guess. Then we both started laughing for some reason, and we didn't stop until the next message popped
2: up. Stay where you are, your children are sleeping, they are asleep, don't move, just stay where you are, please stop calling, don't look outside, it's not them, read the prompts and follow, we don't know what they are, stop calling, weapons are ineffective, They can't leave the trees. Stay where you are. They are not your children." Suddenly the broadcast
1: ended and the test pattern came up. My buddy and I waited for a bit and then hung up. I turned the TV to another channel and got up a look out the window. My property includes several acres of heavily wooded land and I looked out in the backyard where the tree line is clearest. At the edge of the trees, I saw what I think was a small boy. He was running in place, in a very slow, almost robotic way. I couldn't make out any details, but he seemed familiar. He continued to run in place, his legs moving in big exaggerated arcs, his arms pumping. I looked down for a second to unlock the door, and when I looked up, he was gone. As if he'd never been there. I closed the door and locked it, and moved to the bedroom. I made sure all the blinds were closed, but I didn't get much more work done. I don't work for the next two days, but this morning I texted my buddy to see what he's heard. He says only a few other people saw the broadcast, and the guys in charge are in deep water. As to whether or not the situation, whatever it was, was real, it seems no one's talking. But he says our park had an emergency meeting this morning. We've all been advised to keep an eye out for any unusual activity. They haven't specified what the activity might be. I doubt we'll ever learn anything one way or the other. But I'll keep my blinds closed at night for now. We know their names and their birthdays. We know who was missing teeth, who was afraid of the dark, who had bruises. We know who had a hair-lip scar, and who had a brother that died while being born. We know what they wanted to be when they grew up. We can fill books what we know, but what we don't know are the only things that matter to us. We've retraced our steps and gone over every piece that we have, but in the end it doesn't add up to anything, so all we can do is pour over it and try again and again to make sure it all goes somewhere, leads to something, because nothing else is important anymore. All that matters is what we don't have. Here is what we know. On June 21, 1995, the local Cub Scout troop met at the south entrance of the National park which is located approximately twenty miles from town. They were led by two scoutmasters, Huxley and Anders. They were eighteen boys in attendance, ranging from ages seven to ten. For many of them, it was their first real camping trip. The town is small, and most, if not all of them, knew each other at least by name. Everyone had been given permission by their parents to go. Their uniforms would be freshly cleaned, their packs new and still stiff on their shoulders. We can only imagine the cacophony of those young boys running around in the picnic area. We bring this up because they were real. Please forget that. They were real. They were alive and you could touch them. They ran around and they had nightmares and they enjoyed ice cream. They were real children with lives. The Scoutmasters got everyone together and took attendance. One witness remembers seeing them before they left on their own hike. They were by the tables, a big group of them. Honestly, I was glad when they went the other way. Cute, but you know didn't really want them on my back. I guess I don't feel like that now, though. But they seemed like they knew what they were doing. The group entered the forest at around 8 in the morning, as best we can figure. There aren't any cameras out there, of course, but based on their schedule, we feel confident that this is an accurate figure. They took a trail that leads to the mountains about 40 miles before looping back around and ending about 5 miles from the entrance. The group intended to go about 5 miles, where they would camp at the base of the mountains at an established site. Along the way, they passed a group of tourists who reported nothing unusual. The boys were in good spirits, following along and chattering noisily. One of them, a boy we later determined to be 8-year-old Peter Connolly, waved hello as he passed. The tourists waved back. As the group made their way up the trail, they stopped frequently to identify the plants and trees. During one of these stops, the boys began a pinecone war, which a passing hiker became involved. The game ended when a younger boy, we aren't sure which, suddenly began to cry and a ceasefire was called. The hiker said the boy didn't appear to be injured, rather he seemed to be frightened of something up in the trees. Something he kept pointing at. The hiker didn't see anything and he moved on. The group stayed for a little while longer before moving on. And further up the trail, a candy bar wrapper was discovered, impaled on a branch. We aren't sure who put it there, but one of the boy's mothers told us that it was the son's favourite brand. He really likes them. I keep them in a drawer so he can have one after school. You can't find them there. You have to go to Denali's up in Bridgeport. They have them. They know he likes them. She began to cry, so we ended the interview. We kept the wrapper initially as evidence, but have since given it back to the boy's mother. When we interviewed her, it was being kept on the fridge held up by a magnet with the boy's picture on it. She didn't allow us to photograph it for its record. The boys reached the campsite around one one other family was present, but didn't intend to stay the night. They'd been there for a few days and were packing up as the scouts were settling in. The family, a father and his two daughters, made small talk with the boys and the scoutmasters. Ah, oh, it was fun. They were running around. I had the girls help set up the tents. He looked out back. Before the interview, he had sent his two daughters outside. I mean, it was fine. They were fine. We'd been up there a million times. They got set up and I was walking with... What, Howard? Huxton, We corrected him. Huxley? Yeah, Huxley. We were talking and he said something about, uh, do I know any good swimming places? But you know, that time of year it's so cold so I told him that. And he said that's fine, we just sort of talked for a little longer after that and then me and the girls had it out. Nothing bad or anything, just wanted to go swimming and have fun. From this point, we don't have any official record of what the group did. We know, based on what was left behind, that the tents were put up and a fire started. Sticks were around with blackened tips, so at least a few of the boys roasted things in the fire. Logs were set up and there were scuff marks in the dirt where the boys rested their feet. Someone tossed their cup up in a tree and it was still there when the search party arrived. They probably intended to retrieve it on the way out. The boys sat around the fire and told stories. They roasted things and the scoutmaster smoked cigarettes and drank at least four beers as there were cans found outside the camp. Again, we believe they intended to retrieve them later. A trail through the brush led us to believe that at least some of the boys went to a clearing and looked at the stars. They are remarkably clear out there. The boys went to bed. The scoutmaster stayed up for a while longer to make sure everyone was asleep. At some point, they too went to bed and the camp was quiet. There is again no official account of what happened next. All we know for sure is that at some point, the camp was packed and the group moved on Nothing, save for the articles mentioned, were left behind. The group moved west, farther up the trail, and it's believed that they were headed for the swimming area. All of the boys' mothers confirmed that their children took swimming equipment. All of them knew how to swim. Whether they actually went, of course, we aren't sure. But we can imagine the group winding up the trail, the boys in a line, talking to each other and singing songs. The boys would be looking forward to swimming, and to spending another night out in the woods. Their spirits would have been high. They would have eaten a good breakfast of eggs and hot dogs, which makes it all more heartbreaking that at some point along the trail on June 22nd, all 20 people in the group vanished. The group was due back in the afternoon. Parents began arriving around 3 and when the group still hadn't shown up by 5, a few of them decided to hike a ways up the trail to see what had delayed them. After hiking almost 3 miles and having seen no sign of them, they realized that something was wrong and they hurried back to the entrance. The call came in at approximately 6 and by 7 the park was swarming with police and rescue. Those of us in town were quick to learn about it, word travelled fast and the hysteria that came along was almost intoxicating. Within minutes it seemed the town was full of police, park rangers from neighbouring counties, search teams, large German shepherds on leashes being led to the entrance, their noses to the ground. The search itself was massive. And encompassed tens of miles of the park, much farther than anyone was realistically expected to have travelled. Dogs were taken out, given multiple scents to work with in all directions. There was certainly no lack of effort that could explain why nothing and no one has ever been found. In an almost grotesque move, all 18 sets of parents were brought before the cameras in a huge, miserable group. They were given turns to give their children messages, to plead with their imagined captors to offer rewards, to offer forgiveness. For weeks, the population in town was almost doubled. Many families, including ours, offered room and board to the volunteers flooding in at an incredible rate. Eventually, it made national news. Every tree in town wore a yellow ribbon. But as time went on, and the search turned up nothing, people began to leave. They went back home to their real lives, and as incredible as it seems, the boys were largely forgotten. A quiet rumour began to spread that the group had drowned in the lake, although no one had been found in it. For a long time, people talked about the pit at the bottom of the lake which went deep, deep into the earth and contained more than those twenty bodies. The rumour persisted and was used to justify the removal of the yellow ribbons, the signs on telephone poles screaming, ''Bring our babies home!'' On August 15th, the chief of police gave a televised speech insisting that the case was still open and being investigated. Despite the severity of the crime, the nation moved on. Donations dried up, searches could not be afforded. Then the lake was closed, and the yellow ribbons vanished. On June 21st, 1996, local emergency services received a call from a terrified woman who claimed that something was in a backyard. No transcript exists of any of the calls made that evening but through many interviews, we've been able to piece together most of the information. The first call from the terrified woman was placed at approximately 8 in the evening. According to the officer who took the call, the woman claimed that someone had to face one of the trees in her backyard. She couldn't explain how they had done it, or who it might have been. But as she described it, one of the trees in her yard now had a face. The face, she said, was screaming loudly and begging her to come outside and help it. She wanted the awful thing removed immediately. An officer was dispatched and went to the scene but discovered nothing. The woman could not explain where the face had gone. Two hours later, calls began to pour in from all over town. As we later discovered, all of the calls were placed from homes that bordered or were located in the woods. An elderly man called to complain about two boys who were playing some sort of game at the edge of his property. The boys, he explained, had crammed themselves into one shirt and were playing at being conjoined in some awful fashion. Their screaming woke his wife, who was gravely ill, and he wanted to press charges. Two blocks down, a young single mother reported seeing a very young boy running at the edge of the trees, but that he never seemed to move. He simply ran in place, his arms pumping, his face wet with tears. She looked him in the eye, and as if by magic, he disappeared. One mile away, on a property located within the forest, A hunter reported seeing a boy walking upside down through the air, almost 20 feet off the ground, carrying his own spine in his arms like a baby. All across town, strange noises were heard. Muffled conversation, screaming, crying. A name was heard which was later connected to one of the missing boys. A woman reported hearing a strange repetitive sound that she likened to the sound of a chainsaw when it strikes a rock. It woke her two children and frightened them badly enough that she bundled them up in a car and drove to a mother's house a county away. And the calls kept pouring in. Well into the small hours of the night, people reported seeing horrible things. One man, a notorious drunk, called in stone sober to report having seen the head of a young boy emerging from the ground, the mouth a distorted, elongated scream of terror. As the head rose from the ground, the jaw didn't end, but stretched like taffy until the whole affair was more than double its height. He shut all the blinds tightly and drank himself into a coma. He since died, and we can't confirm his story. All over town, on the anniversary of the disappearance of those twenty souls, the strange apparitions were seen, heard, and in some cases, felt. A teenage girl walking in the woods with a boyfriend on a late-night date stumbled over something. Upon closer inspection, she determined what she had tripped over was not in fact a bush, but was the top of someone's head. When it moved under her fingers, she and the young man fled into the night, terrified beyond reason. As the sun began to rise, the cause dwindled and then stopped. Despite the entire town having heard and seen the strange apparitions, the incident was not discussed in any media or even between the people themselves. However, an exodus of the town soon followed. Many of the eighteen families moved away, never to be seen again. They left quickly and without fuss. They simply packed their bags, took their remaining children and fled into the night, leaving behind empty houses and rooms painted blue or yellow or green. We did not pursue them. The town, desperate to move on, willfully forgot those yellow ribbons, those painted rooms. While the houses still stand, they remain empty. Squatters do not live there. The rooms are bare and the houses stand like physical memories. There is constant talk of demolition, but nothing ever comes of it. The twenty people lost on June twenty-first, nineteen ninety-five, have never been found.
0: Thank you all for listening, and I want to thank Matt for getting these stories back to me in such short notice. Um, very talented narrator. If you guys can go and check him out, maybe subscribe if you haven't already. That would be great. Um, I know he would appreciate it as much as I would. Um, but let me know what you guys think of these park ranger or search and rescue stories Um, I thoroughly enjoy them hence why I narrate them Um, I've got another one I want to do which will be probably over an hour long Um, but really good stories Um, you may have heard them before but if not I think you'll be in for a treat Uh, thank Um, thank you all for listening if you're new please subscribe, like and comment Um, I will be doing a giveaway very soon. I'll keep you updated about that. But as always, thank you all for listening and have a pleasant evening. Thank you.